You're listening to The Switch. The Switch is a podcast about ideas and experiences that change our minds. I'm your host, Chase Harris, joined as always for this interview by my co-host, Alex Berner. Now, this episode doesn't need a whole lot in the way of introduction. We invited two of our friends, no strangers to the podcast, to come have a roundtable discussion on how it is people apply ideas. My original question was this. We take in philosophy, psychology, personal growth, and other works situated to improve our lives, but not everyone successfully implements those ideas. Why? What is it that we're doing that works? And as you'll hear, my friends have some insightful things to say on the subject, including a shift in perspective on the question itself. This interview was recorded via a live video call with a small audience who gets to ask questions of our panel at the end of the discussion. If you would like to participate in our recording process, head on over to our Patreon page where you can find the link for free to come hang out every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. We are, of course, a Patreon-funded podcast, and even though we would still be doing this without your support, the generous contributions of our patrons absolutely allow us to do more interviews more often with more guests at better and better quality. Becoming a patron allows you access to some bonus content as well, like the occasional post-interview chat with guests and breakout room discussions from the meetup group. You can find us at patreon.com slash switch underscore podcast. The link is also in the show notes. And once again, a quick reminder about our YouTube channel. If you want to see our faces, the faces of our guests, and of our audience members asking questions should they decide to have their video on, you can find all of that. The YouTube channel link is also in the description. So, without further delay, we start with a quote from Nietzsche, procured by my friend John. Ultimately, no one can hear things, books included, more than he already knows. If you have no access to something from experience, you will have no ear for it. And with that, I would like to introduce our panel discussion for the episode. Today, we've got John Lindinger, Alex Berner, Shrikant. I'm sorry, Shrikant. I'm going to butcher the, the your last name. I'll, I'll let you uh, in a minute. No, uh, go ahead. You can you can butcher it. You're welcome to do that. Go ahead. Shrikant Rangnakar. Good enough. Great. <laughs> and me, Chase Harris, as always. And today we have a single topic in mind, and each of us has prepared a, a short presentation, if you will, on that topic. And the topic is best introduced, I think, like this. What is the point of studying ideas? I heard an idea from uh, my friend Jacob about maps and territory. And if you think of the space of ideas in the world as a map, meaning it is a representation of the territory of the world, ideas, new ideas that come in are ways for you to update your map. But what's the goal of having a map? Navigation. You're trying to actually make movements in the world. You're trying to do things in the world. And for that, you need a constantly updated, better and better map of the world. That is why we study philosophy. That's why we study ideas. That's why we study science. That's why we explore the world. But there's a problem. Sometimes we study and we don't implement those ideas. Sometimes we study ideas and we think they're fun and engaging and interesting. And then we go out into the world and nothing's changed. We haven't improved our 
social circles. We haven't improved our circumstances. We haven't improved our attitudes and habits about the world, even though we've studied. And our question for today, in part, is why is that? But in order to answer that question, we've got our panel here to discuss ideas that they have integrated into their lives. And we're going to pick apart what that process looks like, what it actually looks like to take some idea that you've seen in the world and move it into action. So with that, I will pass it off to our first panelist, John, you're up. Cool. Thanks. You can hear me fine. All right, cool. Um, yeah. So thank you for the introduction. Um, I think this is extremely relevant and pertinent topic, uh, given the myriad and sea of information that all of us drown in every single day, right? We are bombarded with information, but we don't really necessarily understand the distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom. I mean, my working definition of that, like the, the, the discrepancy between the three, information is random data. Knowledge is data that has been applied to a specific design end. So how do I get in better shape? I'm going to choose this information from people that are relevant and it's, it's fact worthy. And I'm going to apply this and then applied knowledge becomes wisdom because you can reflect on it. You understand the context, you understand the nuances and you have your set of experiences to evaluate from and to extract insight. So I think that's the hierarchical organization of, of information into knowledge into wisdom. That's at least my working definition of that. Um, and today we want to talk about, um, I have, I have three main, um, I guess like a, a three principle framework that I want to go through. Uh, what number one is what a main idea that I've extracted from my exploration in intellectual pursuits, uh, two, why I think that one was important to me, why I went, why I've undergone so much effort to ensure it sticks and three, how I pretty much was able to assimilate that into my philosophy and then apply it. Uh, so first, um, some of you who have uh, attended other previous meetups, I've done a meetup on this before. Uh, the idea that I learned from an amalgamation of research, which was, I would say, firstly, it was in a specifically a TED talk called The Five Second Rule. Uh, and this was also a book written by an author named Mel Robbins. And then I amalgamated this with a concept from Dante's Inferno. And I call this the five second rule. And it's basically this, if you have an urge, if you have an inclination to do something, if you have a hunch of intuition or like a bold thought or a statement, you stop whichever you're doing, you stop your mental chatter, you count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, and then you act regardless of your fear, regardless of your emotion of the moment, you just act, okay? You, you execute, you take initiative and you move. You push yourself into action and then momentum carries the rest. So I realized the importance of this from one, like I said, the TED Talk, but two also from a symbolism of Dante's Inferno. It's attributed to the vestibule of hell. People are punished eternally by being chased around by hornets and flies when they're, and they're, and they're chasing a blank flag to symbolize they're not actually doing anything productive. They're not taking any action. They're just stagnating through life. So they have to be externally forced and implored to take action by external methodologies. So that was a very drastic and um, I would say bleak image of symbolism. So I, um, I coalesced that with Mel Robbins and I said, okay, this is an important idea. Uh, why is it an important idea for me? Because when I started to apply it, which we're going to get to in a second, why I started to apply it, firstly, it dispensed with any procrastination. It also dispensed with any guilt and regret that I would have missed windows of opportunity. Um, and even if I did something and it was like a foolish decision or it was an impulse decision, 
it doesn't matter because at that given moment where I had that hunch of intuition from that five seconds, it was exactly what I wanted in that, in that time period. Okay. So that I don't look at those hunches of intuition or that voice of conscience as random. I see validity in that. So I've actually gained a lot from this. And I've also gained the philosophy that was tangentially related. And that is done is better than perfect. Um, I've always been very, very, very critical of myself and my ideas and my productions. So this idea helps me break up my, I guess, big goals into small steps, complete them and say, okay, I'm done. Five, four, three, two, one, start the next one. Don't go back and analyze it and be overly critical about my past behavior because I have a tendency to do that. So that's all the, all the, like, the benefits it's given me. And now how I was able to apply this, how I was able to assimilate this into my character, um, I would say is twofold. I have two main methodologies I use, and that's not only for this idea, that's for all ideas, anything I ever learn, anything I read, anything I watch, and I think it's valuable, I write it down, and then I do one of two things. Firstly, I rewrite it in my own words. If you've read the book, How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler, it says, if you cannot get away from the author's terminology and verbiage, you don't understand the concept. Richard Feynman has a similar idea. If you can't explain it simply to a child, you don't understand it. Um, so I, I've always loved the principle behind that. And I actually have a five-year-old nephew. I frequently try to do this as an exercise, kind of like as a test of my understanding of things. When he asks things, I try to explain it to him in terminology he would understand. So I always try to rewrite the idea in my own words. I do this also when I'm outlining books. I might see a highlight. I might write in the margin. I also write like on, on my computer. I say, okay, this is what it means to me. Or I give an example from my own life to fortify it and, and ossify it so I can make it personal. Um, so that's the first point. I make it personal. I put it in my own words. I rewrite it. I play around with it. I say, okay, and this is pertaining to the quote that Chase just shared. You can't understand anything unless you have an equivalent experience. So I, I strongly believe in the validity of that quote. So that's the first method I do. I rewrite it or I reframe it to my subjective experience. The second thing I do is I keep a very detailed journal and schedule throughout my life. Um, I've done so for like five and a half, six years now where I have like daily tasks or weekly goals and things like this and yearly goals, monthly goals. If I see a, a beneficial piece of information, so like when I came to this five second rule, for example, the day after that I listened to this audiobook, The Five Second Rule, and I connected it in my head with Dante's Inferno, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. I don't want this to sit in the realm of the intellect. I want to like, make this practical. So what I did is I wrote it in my to-do list the next day, like consciously execute on something using the five-second rule. And then I decided to do it. And then I did it multiple times in, in multiple expressions, and then it became habit. Um, so... I, I had accountability. I had written accountability. It was written down. And I always at least very, very, very much try to complete all of my at least daily tasks for the day. Uh, and if I don't, I get really guilty. And that leads to guilty conscience and a whole myriad of other negative implications. Um, so I would say personally, that's the method I've always used when I, when, I, when I find beneficial ideas. How to apply it is one, make it subjective, make it relative to my life, my experiences, give some of my personal examples, write them down or just re rewrite the whole quote, paragraph, main idea in my words as a summary, um, or try to explain it to someone, someone, or even explain it to myself out loud. Sometimes I do that as well. I close the book and I say, what did this chapter say? I try to verbalize it out loud. If I can't do that, I didn't understand it. Um, so that's the first method. And the second method is, again, tracking, making it practical, uh, attaching it to a goal and making it quantifiable so I can know whether I've implemented it successfully or I have quantifiably failed. Uh, so try and put a number on it. So, okay, if you have this impulsive thought, do this five-second rule. If I wait more than five seconds or I don't do the action, I fail. So I have to redo it. I have to redo it. I have to redo it until it becomes habit. So 
those are my two methodologies that I've always used. And I use this for any interesting idea that I get from a book, from a lecture, from a podcast, anything interesting I find, it always goes through these two frameworks. And I find the more I do these things, the more I write it in subjective terms, the more I apply it, the more it becomes part of who I am. Um, as Emerson says, I don't remember every single book I've ever read, just as I don't remember every meal I've ever had, but nonetheless, this is still part of me. So with that said, I will pass it on to Alex so he can go over his methodologies for applying ideas. Thanks, John. That was awesome. So I actually wrote mine all out and I'm going to be reading from a script. And I think that will become apparent why as I go through this. Almost exactly a year ago, I read The Power of Habit, and it was one of the most major switches I've had in my life. I realized that I could create the life I wanted through the process of changing those habits. I'd always intuitively known that I could change my life, but I'd never had the fine tools that this book gave me to do so. I identified my keystone habit, which was snoozing my alarm in the morning, and I changed that to immediately getting out of bed and meditating, another one of my major switches from earlier in my life. This changed everything for me. I also saw firsthand how it became easier and easier and no longer started off my mornings with crippling anxiety. While that was the real switch for me, it's only the gateway to what I want to talk about today. Around the same time I read The Power of Habit, I remember hearing the idea that your brain is only forced to clarify its thoughts and make any sense of them when having conversations or writing. And I thought back and noticed that part about conversations was definitely true throughout all the discussions I've had with Chase and other friends and family, I always felt like I had a much better understanding of my own ideas after the conversation. But a few days later, I would forget that conversation and the insights gained would slowly fade, leaving behind a very small mental change. And while those changes matter, I still felt like my brain wasn't working optimally. And eventually I remembered back to how much I had loved writing as a kid. Creative writing was literally the only part of school that I liked. I felt I could truly express what was on my mind, and to this day I can still remember many of the stories I wrote when I was eight years old. Talk about internalization. So I decided to start adding daily journaling right after my meditation practice in the mornings. And within a week, the writing became the thing I'd look forward to the moment I got out of bed. Uh, and well, that and some coffee, I guess. Some days I would reflect on my emotions, and others, I would develop ideas about how to improve my workflow, life, and relationships. And some days, I would just get all my little complaints out so I didn't have to whine to people about them later in the day. Uh, originally, I had the goal of writing 500 words each morning over about 30 minutes. And I hit that almost every day. And you can do the math, but after 100 days, I had nearly 50,000 words written. And as I looked back over my writing, I noticed some common themes. The ones that I thought stood out, I continued to develop each morning piece by piece. Some didn't lead anywhere, but others did. And eventually I found that I and refined something that I thought could be potentially important. So to connect that with another aspect of my life, I write music for media as my career. And I know firsthand how the community of composers is overworked, overstressed, overstressed and uh, to take it back to the power of habit caught in many negative habit loops. Self-doubt, imposter syndrome, crippling anxiety, deteriorating health are all very common things to see in my community, and sometimes even jealousy, resentment, frustration, and depression. I've gone through some of these things too, and I've watched others in the industry experience them. But through my writing, I felt like I was getting to the heart of why I felt so many of these things. I was discovering how 
many of these neg- negative habit loops had formed and how they continue. I was training myself to think about these things differently and break away from those negative thought patterns, and that opened, opened up a whole new world of freedom for me. Part of my life goal is to help others, and I think many people who have this goal, myself included, often think too big, on a, at least when it comes to helping people on a personal level. It becomes an unmanageably large and unfocused goal, and that destroys it. I realized that for me, I needed to focus smaller and more specifically. I realized I needed to do it in a realm that I understood, too, with similar types of people to me, with similar experiences. And I realized that these ideas that I've been continuously clarifying for myself could be useful to others. So I wrote for a while about how to best convey this to people I thought could benefit from it. And I came to the conclusion that the best way to do that would be to get it in front of the eyes of the right people was through a YouTube channel. So as of three weeks ago, I started a channel with the goal of examining philosophy, psychology, health, and personal growth through the lens of being a composer. I know it's a small target audience, but I'm just getting started, and I would not have been able to do this um, without this writing every day. And because of that, I have tens of thousands of words written already in outlines that I really just had to copy and paste and refine. And I've already tested these on myself, and I want to see if anybody else finds them useful. So this is my new project. And if I hadn't done any of this daily writing, I truly don't think I would understand these things for myself, nevertheless be able to help convey them and create a space for other people to talk about them. On a side note, another thing I've learned about myself through this If you listen to this podcast and notice how Chase and I run the podcast, I don't usually chime in until later. I've learned that this is because it takes me longer to process information and internalize it to a point where I feel like I understand it enough to ask questions. My strength is in writing, not talking on the spot. I need more time than others. So during interviews, I listen, write, and try to incorporate topics into my understanding of the world. And once I'm able to do that, questions start to arise naturally. And my whole life, I've been neglecting that part of my brain that worked the best. After a year of doing this, I actually feel significantly smarter, and I'm not so hard on myself when it takes me time to digest new information. And with that, I want to hand it off to Chase. And I'll bounce it back to Shrikant. All right, uh, Alex, that was, that was amazing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also a very big fan of writing. Uh, I've been writing since I think I was 18 or so. And during these years, I think I have like 200 plus journals of about like 40,000 pages each. And I think what I am, I don't think I could be without the writing. Because what writing does is that it makes all your thinking kind of self-reflective and it takes it, you know, it increases the precision and the comprehensiveness and uh, kind of structure of your thought, so I don't think you can really think without writing. Uh, so I think I think it's it's a very big deal. Um, so I'm I'm just delighted to hear that. So um, so for me, the big idea, uh, you know, I'm I am I love to explore ideas. I've explored ideas for a long, 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 long time. Continue to explore them very aggressively. So of all the ideas that I've come across, the idea that really is my number one idea that has changed my life is Louis Sullivan's idea of form follows function or function creates its own form. Um, It's a very simple idea. Uh, Like the way in which Louis Sullivan puts it is I have come to regard as valuable only those truths 
which are universal. Um, it's an idea that applies to everything and it applies to everything at every scale. And I'm going to do a full meetup on the life of Louis Sullivan and his idea of art of expression and how this idea shapes how you learn to do things. You know, art of expression for him is a very large idea. It's basically how you do things. It's actually a system of operation, your kind of system of uh, doing things, which applies to every field, regardless of what you're doing, whether you're doing science or art or engineering or business, it applies to everything because that's how he thinks. His mind is very broad. He's looking for ideas that he can port across everything at every scale. Um, so, you know, how, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how I have tried to absorb it. I don't think I've done a good job, um, but I'm going to tell you what I've done. Um, for me, the biggest way of taking in a new idea or mastering an idea is immersion. Um, so I've immersed myself in the work of Louis Sullivan or anybody else like that. For example, Leonardo da Vinci is very much like that, where you go between you know, form and function seamlessly and you flow from one area to another seeing connections so i've spent a lot of time taking you know kind of immersing myself in works of them works of these people uh people like this uh what it does is that this idea though simple you can actually see you, partly you get inspired by it partly you learn from this so, so immersion is one technique that i used uh John talked about rewriting. Uh, so when I re read his, uh, you know, Louis Sullivan's Kindergarten Chats, I was so blown away by it that I bought a whole bunch of copies, like 32 copies and gave it to everybody that I knew. And I found that only one third of the people were completely blown away by it, but rest of them didn't get it. So I rewrote the whole book. I just, re you know, took the whole book and rewrote it um, mostly keeping his words, but just making sure that they were kind of organized in a way which are easier to take in. If there were some difficult um, things about style, I changed it a little, but it was a long project of about a year. So I lived with that thought for that. Uh, for my preparation for this Wednesday presentation, what I'm doing is that I'm taking the part, everything is written on art of expression, and I have translated it into Marathi which is the language I grew up speaking. And I, you know, till seventh grade, I did not know any other language. So actually I know Marathi better than I know English. So I've trans translated that into Marathi and then have retranslated that Marathi back into English. And that's a really fascinating, I didn't know how much I would get from it, but that's really a way of making, you have to make it yours. You know, these ideas are not to be worn, not to be shown off it has to become a part of you. Um, the um, other thing that is that uh, I use very widely to understand ideas is visuals. So try to trying to capture everything that I think about an idea in visual terms, in diagrams, where in a single glance, I've captured everything that I need to think about. 
um, that is a core part of how, so the, and it very much relates to how people like Leonardo da Vinci or uh, Louis Sullivan process information. So you go seamlessly between visual capturing of it and words um, explaining it. The visual gives you the overall pattern. So you never lose the pattern when you're looking into details and words enable you to go into detail to as much level of detail or precision uh, or parts as possible. But the, the visual will make sure that you keep the entire context uh, in mind. So this idea is very uh, unusual idea. I mean, to, to show you the power of idea, I find that the reason I think that I'm not really done much with it yet, though I have tried very hard, uh, is that this is an idea that produces amazing results, no matter what I look at and what scale. So for example, when I was doing, you know, I'm doing the meetups, I constantly ask myself, what is my function? What are we trying to do here? And then look at everything, every little thing we're doing to see whether that is fully expressed. If the, if the, um, what happens is that by nature, we are creatures of habit and we borrow piece, try to borrow pieces of your, our souls from others, um, either other people or your own work of the past. And if you, if it is not alive, then it is dead. It is actually stops the flow of, of life is of thought of productive action. And so this is an issue, even if you have been working on something, you have to be alive to the fact whether your ideas and your thoughts and your actions live or whether they are just, you know, carrying on through inertia. Um, so I, I find this idea just, just profound. And these are some of the ways um, I've, I've tried to incorporate it. Um, and I hope to do, do more. So let me hand it over to Chase. Chase. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for all of those things. Um, for mine, I'm not going to pick specific ideas. I think they'll come up. I'm going to talk about my implementation and where those things came from. And maybe I can sort of backtrack from there. Um, uh, I guess I will start with a specific idea. One of the biggest ideas that has impacted me uh, since I've started studying philosophy has been Stoicism. I think that the ethical framework of the Stoics resonates so much with me and so much to my core that the natural thing for me to want to do was to implement this. And I started asking questions, like Shrikant said, of how does this apply here? Going through every aspect of my life and saying, how does stoicism apply here? How does stoicism apply here? And of course, along the way, I'm, I'm an avid studier and reader and, and discoverer of information. And so I would take in other ideas as well. And I've come up with a couple of habits that I think influence my life in a way that's profound, that are prime examples of how I've implemented philosophy. So just in terms of daily habits, I'll start there. Every single day, I start with my daily gratitude journal. 
I write down a list of 10, 15 things that I'm grateful for. And it's a mix of uh, sort of theoretical things like I'm grateful for, um, not theoretical, abstract. I'm grateful for the fact that I have access to clean drinking water, right? That's a, that's an abstract-ish thing, but it, it makes sense in my real life. But it's not something that like happened to me yesterday or that I own, right? Access to drinking water is a phenomenon of my life that I may go by without me thinking about it. But the fact that I write it down every day puts my attention on it. And the other things on the list actually are things that happen to me. There'll be specific things. Like if I uh, talked with my friend yesterday, I will put in my gratitude list today. I'm grateful that that friend is in my life and that we had, we got to have a conversation and the way that ties into stoicism. So a lot of people know stoicism for the way that they handle negative things, right? The Stoics would say, look, you know, a, a sailor is not, uh, is not a sade in a storm or in calm waters. He's a sade in a storm, right? When the, when it's stormy, that's when the, it's the true test of your character. And that makes a lot of sense. I'll get to that in a second, but there's another half of human experience, uh, roughly that is positive affect and that is preferred and the Stoics also had a lot of advice on that. Maybe they didn't focus on it as much as I think they should have, but the advice was gratitude. That's how you handle good things in your life. That's how you, uh, you absorb what they would call preferred indifference in a way that you maintain your character. It's by gratitude. And so for me, gratitude is a daily practice that I've implemented in my life. I've done it almost every single day this year, including weekends. Um, the other half of that is the negative, the meditatio malorum, premeditating, premeditatio malorum, premeditating the bad things that can happen. And I, I don't do this in a negative way, actually. I do this by asking, and I got this from Massimo, uh, Massimo Piliucci. I do this by asking, what are the things I'm going to face today? What are the, the hardships or challenges that I, uh, that may walk into my life today? And I think about how I'll handle them. And the fact that even if things come up that I don't expect, I have the capacity of character to handle those things. And just the idea of writing down in the beginning of the day, you know, I'm going to be working with three-year-olds today and they take a lot of patience. I'm going to be uh, fighting against my internal desires to not keep up with my disciplines. And that takes discipline. That takes self-discipline. Those are things that I'm going to be facing today that are dispreferred. And I can handle those. So every single day, I write those things down. And the last thing I write down every single day is my top few goals. And they're, they're short-term, medium-term goals. They're flexible goals. They're all, there's a whole lot of work out there about how you should write down your goals. But the, the reason that I write down the things that I write down is because... So there's a part of your brain called the reticular activating system. And as far as I understand, the way that it works is your brain is taking in a whole lot of information all the time. And most of it just gets thrown out, right? Most of that information that you're taking in, totally relevant for what you're doing. But then some part of your brain, the reticular activating system, is essentially checking against your values. Is this useful? Is this useful? Is this useful? And at some point, something comes in through your senses that is useful and it goes, aha, pay attention to that. And you pay attention to it. Now, if you don't have a deliberate 
way of defining your purpose and values, you're just at the mercy of whatever the reticular activating system has picked up from your current habits and actions are your values, right? It, you've, you've essentially by chance trained your brain to value the things that you have blundered into unless you're writing it down, unless you're being deliberate about what your values and purposes are. So that's the reason that I write my goals and write some of those things down it's because that contextualizes my day. That means I don't get distracted for very long. And when I do get distracted, I immediately know I'm distracted. This has nothing to do with the things that are in my goals for my life. This has nothing to do with the things that I'm planning on doing, the things that are important to me. This is a distraction. And you feel it right away. It's that reticular activating system. So writing all of those things down every single day has been amazing to me. And like I said, that comes from a core of stoicism as well as some other things, uh, you know, modern psychology, the various things that I've taken in. Now, the question is, in my mind, how was it that I was able to convert reading Seneca and Charles Duhigg and these other people and turn it into these actions that I actually do in my life? What are the actual skills? that or skills or scenarios or actions that are necessary to bridge that gap. And to me, that's a black box. I don't know. I have a couple of things that I think are part of the answer, but even having experienced it, it feels like a black box to me. You input philosophy and outcome actions. And that's, that's the reason that I wanted to ask this question. That's the reason that I had these guys here to talk about their integration of philosophy, because I think if we can, the closer we get to an answer to that question, the closer we get to being able to communicate our ideas that really matter in a way that's very effective for helping people, including ourselves, become better. So here are the three sort of things that I think are important parts. This is by no means an exhaustive list. This is just a couple of the important ones that I think um, are worth mentioning. Now, first I'll mention the one that all three of these guys before me mentioned, and that's writing things down. You must write your ideas down to clarify them because that gives you context. It lets you personalize it. It lets you understand ideas in your way. But like I said, it also activates your brain chemistry differently. It actually makes you pay attention to the world differently when you're writing things down, whether it's to clarify your ideas or to lock in your values. The next thing was also mentioned, social accountability. Some method of accountability, whether it's writing things down and tracking like John, or whether it's integrating yourself with a group of people that are going to hold you accountable to the things that you say you're going to do and to the values that you espouse. And that's what I think most of us do by coming to this group. You expect to see people who are, who are living the values that they espouse by, you know, studying philosophy. Um, and that's what I get out of my current circle of sociability, the, the friends that I call, the, the people I interact with, the, the people who I call and ask questions about or ask questions to, for me, that's a method of social accountability that I think is 
absolutely necessary for converting the ideas that you think into the actions that you do in the world. And the last one, I don't know, I, I didn't think I heard anybody mention it, but I know that you all know it. And that has to do with attention. I think attention is the key to all of this, paying proper attention. And, and that's what we're all talking about, really. So that maybe that's why it wasn't mentioned, because it was implied. Um, but I think paying deliberate attention, as Napoleon Hill called it in Outwitting the Devil, definiteness of purpose. I think paying attention is a skill that, when practiced, leads to a much faster and more efficient conversion of ideas into action. And the way that I practice that is through things like meditation. It's the way that we all practice it is through things like paying attention to the material that we're trying to study and paying attention to the actions in our lives, whether they're resonating with the material or not, whether we're actually doing this conversion or not. All that is practicing that skill of attention. But I really think for me, the biggest, the biggest boost to that has been meditation. So that's my spiel. We're going to open up the panel to a couple of questions now. And I think let's go, let's, I'll ask the questions. We'll go around in the same order that we gave presentations uh, and we can answer the questions. You guys feel free to be as verbose or as brief as you'd like. Um, once we're done with a couple of the questions that I have, we'll open it up to audience Q&A. So if anybody comes up with any questions while we're talking through this, feel free to stick them in the chat or raise your hand in Zoom. I'll call on people in turn and you can unmute and ask your question. Um, we'll get to audience questions after these. So everyone's sort of touched on that question of how we go from taking in to implementing. Uh, could I have everybody go around again and just very concisely uh, talk about like, how do you make that conversion from what you're taking in to what you're putting out and doing if, if you have any other details to add. So John, you're up. Yeah. Um, so first I would say, like, as you, as you summarized, make it your own. One of my favorite quotes is by actually one of my favorite pictures is a picture of Richard Feynman's blackboard after he died. He left work on his blackboard. Brilliant, brilliant physicist. One of the quotes on his blackboard after he died was, if I can't build it, I don't understand it. Okay, So that means taking apart everything, in his case, atoms, in his case, molecular formations of the universe and the cosmos, but in our case, like intellectual ideas, principles, philosophies, propositions, etc. Take it apart understand the necessary constituents and arguments and polarizations and counter arguments and play devil's advocate, whatever you have to do, and then make it your own. So I usually write things down. So for example, practical example, I'm reading a book. Okay. So I'm reading Candide right now. All right. So what I do is I have Google documents and for every single book that I've read since, I don't know, I, I've just started doing it on Google docs, but when I'm reading something, if I find something really interesting or like I like the particular verbiage they used, I might highlight it, okay? Or if it's like necessary relevant plot points or if it's like there's some philosophy here, there's some practical advice here, what I'll do is I'll copy the quote and then I actually substantiate it either with like my own autobiographical experiences so I can say this makes me think of the time when or, oh, this is just like when you experienced that relationship with that person, etc. I give myself 
um, examples to instantiate this idea, to then, then attach it and tether it to my identity, because the best way to learn something is to tether it with something that we already know. So we are here, we're, we're just like harpooning ideas and pulling them back in, and then our fortification gets larger and larger. That's how I visualize learning. So I make it my own, I rewrite it, I rewrite the quote, I rewrite the idea, I try to summarize it. Um, I try not to rely on the art, um, author's verbiage as much. I mean, if it's like a dense work, like philosophy, I kind of have to, uh, but I'll try my best to like summarize a chapter. In fiction, I do this a lot. I'll, I'll, I really try not to highlight, and then I'll summarize an entire chapter pretty much from recent memory. Like in the, everything I read in the last hour, I just try to dump it on paper in my words. So I make it my own. That's the first. And then if I do find like a gem in there, like, oh, your life, would, your health would improve, or here's a scientifically proven way to increase your productivity by 20%. I'm like, okay, cool. That sounds, that sounds interesting. That's a gem right there. What I do is I then write it down in my um, accountability, in my to-do list, in my journal, which I have a unbroken chain of over 2000 days of extracting value from my life, not getting through life, getting from life. So I think it's the most important distinction all of us can make is getting from our day, getting instead of getting through our day. And to get from your day, you have to record it. You have to write it down. You have to collect it. You have to analyze data. So you can't improve anything you don't measure, right? So I, I first make it my own. And then once I have it, once I have a gem there, I put it in my to-do list. I say, okay, by this date, you know, execute this specific action. And then I have accountability. I write it down. I, I analyze it. I track it. I see if I completed it, et cetera. If I didn't, I, I just push it forward to the next day. So those are my two main methods, I would say, like making it idiosyncratic, making it intrinsic, and then applying it in my journal. Awesome. Alex, you're up next. The black box. Information comes in. Actions come out. What, what's in there? So I kind of want to focus on one specific part that for me is important. I kind of alluded to, I don't, I only have so much attention, right? We all do. But like I mentioned, it takes me longer to process information. So for me, what's important is having the right filters. And I need these filters to come into place. So for example, first, is it accurate, right? Like think, take some time to think about, does this make sense to me? Like, is this information that I would like to incorporate? And then also put it through a filter of relevancy, you know, whether that's, overall for my life or it, what for what I need right now. And also a filter of, is this something I realistically believe that I can implement? So I, I need to put things through these filters. And so basically only what I see is like the golden nuggets are, you know, surf or still there. And I definitely am aware that that could, um, Put kind of yeah. You know, put a filter on a certain type of information that I might need to incorporate, but I do think that as long as I stay mindful and self-aware, the world and people around me will check that with my interactions with them, and I'll become aware of any blind spots. But for me, I I get overwhelmed, and that's what stops that transition. So I need to make sure that it's worth incorporating. And then I'll figure out the way to do it. And a lot of like what John just mentioned, you know, as that next step kind of for me. Yep, Shrikant, you're up. Okay. Um, so my perspective or Louis Sullivan's perspective is different. Um, I don't see this as being, you know, there is an idea, there is a black box and action. 
Um, so Louis Sullivan, or I, I think that there is only action. So there is only life. And what you're trying to do is to remain true to life. You're trying to absorb the nature of life. And ideas are simply patterns that you notice in life. So all you're doing is that you're trying to absorb the entire kind of complexity of life. You're trying to see what simple things in life give rise to those complexities. And ideas are all about identifying, just noticing of those patterns. So it's all about paying attention relentlessly to, to life. And basically, as you are inspired by life, you kind of start to kind of almost mimic life, you know, how it works. So for example, the whole idea of form follows function is that you notice that the way in which life operates, the forms that life has are driven by the purpose of living and some simple processes of life give rise to this enormous complexity of life, uh, life forms that we see. And what you're trying to do is that you're trying to move in that way, in a very simple way. So it's, it's a very different perspective than saying that this is the idea, how do I bring it to life? You're, you're taking the perspective of saying, life is all that is, and that's all I'm trying to, to absorb, to mimic, to, to live. And that's not happening just outside of me. It's the same thing happening with, within me, with, with my emotions, with my thought, with my spirit, with my body with my interaction with other people. So it's a very different perspective of integration. Historically, has that perspective been common or uncommon? Like do, I, you've studied a lot of ideas and patterns of, of life and you've studied a lot of them in a historical context. Is that a common perspective? Uh, it's not a common perspective. Uh, the entire... Western tradition um, is Platonic. Plato is the kind of ruling philosopher. So the idea that you have idea and then you're trying to figure out how to apply it, that's very much Platonic. It's, you know, Plato held that there are actually these ideas in the cave. And those are the ideas, those are the things that really matter. This is very much, this view is very much rooted in biology. This is kind of, uh, for the longest time, you know, philosophers held that man is not, it's something else than, uh, than an animal. That there is no, they didn't see life uh, in animals. If at all they saw it, they saw it as being the lowly thing. That's something that they have to overcome. Whereas, um, so it's very much, you know, it's, People like Sullivan are standing on the shoulders of Darwin and they're trying to use the living processes. And they're trying to not just stay at there. They're looking at kind of the higher level processes of how, how life is self-regulatory. How does that, you know, how does self-regulation develop and how the self-regulation keeps on kind of projecting at some point of an ideal and how it tries to go towards it. So I would say this is very much kind of rooted in Darwin and science. It's also science in the tradition of that it is it has humility. 
towards life. It is not saying that I'm going to figure it out and then I'm going to do. No, no, no. It's saying, let me see what life is like. And let me, it's very much stoic in that way. It's kind of, it, it has profound respect for nature. And you're trying to, all you're trying to do is you're trying to live according to nature. So there are some echoes of it before, but um, so that, that's, that, that would be my answer. I don't know whether I've done a good job of answering it. I, I think so. I'm, I'm trying to integrate that way of understanding into my own understanding. And I, I think it's, it's compatible with my understanding. I, I just have never heard it phrased quite like that. I actually want to, not to keep the spotlight on you, Shrikant, but I think this, this is a good opportunity to sort of lead into one of my next questions. And maybe we'll go, we'll go back around backwards. What are the blockers? What are the forces pushing the other direction and how do we address them? So for context, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about how people always ask the question, like, why am I failing? As if success is the norm and failure is a, a some mystery to be overcome but and maybe i'm not framing it the same way he did but the real question seems to be like failure is sort of the default how do you go the other direction what's what's what makes failure the default and yeah, how do you stave that off? How do you how do you move in the right direction in terms of applying ideas and patterns? I, I'm I don't know if that makes sense as a question. If it if it does, no, it's, take it's it a great away. question. It's a great question. Um, so I would give again. Uh, I'll give Louis Sullivan's answer in the three three things. There is kind of primacy of form, fear, and feudalism. Let me explain. See what happens is that most people want to say goods are here, ideas are here, ways of doing things are here. So they take pieces of their soul off the shelf from people around them where, you know, they just say, oh, this is how you're supposed to talk. This is how you're supposed to you know, interact with people. This is what you're supposed to do. So that is primacy of form. They never ask the question, what is it that I should be trying to do? What is the potential of life? So that is focusing on this issue of form versus function. So one way in which people uh, make this mistake is to give primacy to form rather than function. Uh, one of the reasons uh, people do that, it is, it is easy. Uh, it is, um, you know, it requires no commitment. It requires, it's, it's lazy, you know, it, it's, you, you have everything. You just already just, just imitate, you know, that's the easiest way. So that's one thing, uh, kind of putting form before function. Um, second is uh, at the emotional level, it is fear. Because to be actually open to life and to actually hear and actually see what is going on and try to act accordingly is an act of courage. You're saying, this is what I think, therefore I'm going to do this. And everything around, like, every instinct of saying, let's not rock the boat, uh, all of that. So that there is a fear. Fear is the emotion that stops it. Um, so that would be, so form would be at kind of a conceptual level that I, I'm going to just use things, construct. I'm not going to create anything. I'm just going to use what is constructed by others. 
fear is like an emotional thing that you're, you're primarily motivated by fear instead of love. Instead of saying, I want to live. I want to get this from life. You're saying, I am afraid that I will lose what I have. So let me not try anything. Okay. So there is that emotional level. Uh, at a social level, uh, you know, he calls it feudalism. It's like you look at yourself, not as a human being, not as an individual operating um, in, in society. You look at it as that you have a certain place in society and you take for granted the way in which the society is doing things, whether it is within your family, whether it is within your, uh, you know, your clique, or whether it is in with your country or some your company, you just take for granted that you are only this lowly person, or it doesn't matter whether it is low or high. You know, once you have a chain, it you know it connects both it it uh, enslaves both slave and master at the same time. It doesn't matter where you think in hierarchy you are, but you are always thinking in terms of a feudal structure um, and not in terms of the fact that you are an individual, you have this um, irreplaceable value of your own life that you, you need to do the most of. And, you know, you need to have the courage to do that. You need to be willing to work to actually produce the forms that would capture the function of your life. So those are the three answers that uh, he would give. I like those. Well, uh, at some point, I would like to come back to parts of that. Alex, uh, I want you to take the question next. And you mentioned the book, The Power of Habit, which I've also read as an, is an awesome book. And you also mentioned that snoozing your alarm was a keystone habit for you. Uh, if you want... I would like to talk a little bit more about that, but still in the context of this question of what are the blockers? What are the things that are the forces sort of pointing downward and how do you, how do you turn around? How do you move in the other direction, you know, in the sense of applying ideas and philosophy? So I, I don't know if I have a, a good answer to that because these few things that have been um, big changes for me, you know, med finding meditation, reading power of habit, all just seemed like right place, right time type of things. I, I can't attribute it to anything else. My mom gave me one of the books. Um, I found the other book in a pile of books in the trash room in my apartment. Like, I, I don't really know what I could uh, attribute it to. Um, could you repeat like the first part of that question? Yeah. Well, so basically the, the idea that I'm getting at is, uh, the natural direction is down. The, the natural direction is stagnation and fail. And maybe natural is not the right word that has a lot of connotations to it, but okay. The default direction is down. If you don't do anything, if you inherit the forms in the way that Shrikant was saying, if you inherit the forms of society as they are, and you don't use the energy to create new ones and you don't overcome that fear. 
like I said, the default direction is stagnation and, and death. How do you turn the other way and grow? It's a, it's a, I realize it's an abstract question. For me, it's, I'd say, you know, being self-aware and kind of assessing what am I thinking that's hurting me? You know, what am I, what are these assessing what I actually do first, right? Because I might have a totally different idea in my head of what I'm doing versus what I'm actually doing. And I think John mentioned um, writing down everything he does during the day. And that was a big thing for me when I wrote down and clocked every 30 minute section of everything I did for the day. And I was like, wow, I worked all day. And then I looked and I had worked for three hours. And I didn't realize how many, oh, I did the laundry for an hour. I talked on the, to a friend on the phone for two hours. Didn't realize that. And so I just, it's awareness. You know, I didn't know any things had to change. And um, I think then through, you know, meditation and understanding what I want from my life, I can slightly shift those in directions that make more sense for me. If I just love talking to people and I'm content with like a, a a certain, you know, income or job or lifestyle, but I just want to talk to friends, I'm not going to cut that down. You know, I, so I think it's really assessing what I care about in my own life and and also recognizing kind of what Shikant mentioned like how does my personal um goal for my life or how I want to live differentiate or different from society's kind of generalized perspective of how people should live. And then recognizing what are the things society's encouraging me to do that might not be right for me. Yeah. All right, John, the question is to you. Okay. So this is multifaceted. I think the first the necessary preliminary realization that we have to view in our lives is that the mind does not remain idle. And if we don't voluntarily plant seeds of insight into it that are constructive, thoughts will reach our mind as a result of our own neglect. Okay, so this is the classic polarization I always talk about of design versus proximity. So if we don't design our lives, there's a million ways to say this, plan your life or fall into someone else's plan for your life. Whatever does not obey itself must be commanded. Um, the more you are disciplined by yourself, the less you'll be disciplined by the world, vice versa. There's a million ways to say it. Um, so I think a major variable and influencing factor why we are like regressing in life, I would say involuntarily uh, exposing ourselves to environmental stimuli. Being uh, society, being friends, being people, um, input, music, TV shows, etc. The amalgamation of all that input only by proximity, meaning by random chance. I think that is the biggest detriment to all of our lives. And if you, you can substantiate this statistically, okay, I understand there are areas for context and nuances and exceptions to a rule, of course, but as a general rule, let's look at it statistically, okay? So I'm a random person. I go into the world, okay? Every single individual has an opinion. We also have an ego validation where we love to see expression of our opinions. We love approval of our opinions. We love people echoing our opinions, etc. So if I go out and I ask 100 people, what's the best philosophy to have to live a happy life? What's the best way to make money? What's the, what's the way for me to lose weight? What's the way for me to gain muscle, etc.? 
I will be subject to thousands of opinions, okay? And if we look at the validity of those opinions, let's do some statistics. This is where this comes in. 67% of people in America self-report themselves as unhappy. Two-thirds of Americans are overweight. 75% of people live paycheck to paycheck, okay? You can go down this long laundry list of just compartmentalizing people's lives into specific sections like fulfillment, money, happiness, career, relationships, uh, how much they've traveled, whatever you want to like compartmentalize this by. And it's kind of, it's rather bleak if you look at it that way. So these chances that I go out and I find like a good positive influence that's going to propel me forward and uphill and build a constructive life, it's rare, right? So the, the way to beat those odds is to design your own life. So this is where you hit that polarization phase. I think our greatest capacity as, as humans is that of creative imagination. That is the differentiating variable that sets us apart from all other organic biological life on the planet. We can create things in our head. Very simple. Imagination. I can think of my ideal self. I can say, I want this career. I want to be this type of person. I want to marry that person. I want to be at this income level. Okay. We can do that as humans. But again, as I said in the beginning, the mind does not remain idle. If we don't do that deliberately, thoughts will reach it as of neglect from the news, from our friends, from parents, from teachers, from like them spewing their opinions. And if we don't have this filter um, through through the information, as, as Alex was talking about, if you don't have like, is it relevant? Is it necessary? Is it truthful, et cetera? If we don't have that filter, if we don't have the awareness from the practice of meditation, if we don't have that filter from like, the stoic uh, principles of the, of the delayed response between um, like stimuli and, and response, if we don't have that, guess what? We adopt all of that external in influence and we become products of our environment. And this is evolutionarily understandable because we grew up in tribes, which to be a nonconformist, of course, meant exile and consequently death. So if we are to live a successful life, it's you can almost posit it as we are contravening. We have 100,000 years of contravening forces of evolution against us when we're trying to grow. Because not only about other people trying to pull us down, as Shrikant was talking about with forms, with blind adherence to societal norms with other people spewing opinions who are unqualified, but also our own thoughts because our mind evolved for survival. So what we, what did we do? We focused on threats. We focused on the lion, the predators. We focused on scarcity of food. We focused on shelter, etc. So now that we're no longer in that environment, our mind still dwells on uh, this embarrassment, this criticism that I received, um, this exploitation. Am I going to be accepted by my peers? Am I going to have social validation, etc.? So we not only have the external world of other people, we also have our own internal mechanism fighting us back. And I think the way to mitigate that, the way to, to I guess, lessen and, and relegate that power is to create such an ideal that has so much, we have so much faith in that future. We have so much like competence in, un, in, in the, our ability and tendency to unfold that. And we are continually doing things every day, our disciplines day in and day out. We are progressing every single day. We are challenging our beliefs we are measuring our beliefs against the world through action and, and, and uh, readjusting accordingly. We are subjecting ourselves to voluntarily seek new information, books, podcasts, seminars, lectures, all right? All of those imply deliberation, right? Because you have to know what you're looking for to buy a book. Um, and then you have all that and you execute on your disciplines and you make progressive realization toward that ideal. That's, I think, the only way that we have. But again, this is hard. This is, a, this is a nonconformist approach. You don't have immediate approval by people. You have people doubting you. You have people projecting their insecurities on you. Oh, you could never start a business. That's never going to work. You're going to fail. Oh, you don't know anything about investing. You're not going to make any money. Oh, you can't do that. You've never done that before. A lot of people's thinking 
is limited by precedent. They look around at themselves and they're not using their imagination. So they say, my thinking is limited by precedent. Therefore, whatever I've achieved up to this point, I can't surmount any, any higher than this. Okay. Because they're not using their imagination. Um, because it's being dwelled by, I look at this equivalent of, of um, like a, a garden. Okay. It's just weeds in the garden. It's nothing, nothing's deliberate. It's all just haphazard. Seeds have just been randomly thrown and, you know, we didn't actually plan out or design any of this thing. Um, so yeah, those are, those are, I guess, a lot of things that I want to say. And like one closing thought is you have to have certainty in this ideal. Tony Robbins has an idea where he says, wherever two people meet and there is rapport, whoever is more certain is always going to influence the other person. So let's say I have an ideal or it's like, if I have a newly formed idea, like maybe I want to start a business, maybe I want to become an architect, whatever this new idea is, maybe I want to move, I want to quit my job, whatever happens to be. Okay. It's a little bit scary, but I, I'm kind of faithful for it. Um, and if, if it's new, if it's not really that deeply rooted in my soil, if I project that to somebody else and say, um, I want to start a business and like I get criticized, I'm just immediately, that plant is immediately going to die. Where if, if I had like water, I cultivate it, I put that seed in it. I have my ideal. It's like plan A, no plan B it's that or death. Okay. You have to have that conviction, that certainty. I can have a hundred people tell me that's not going to work. I'm like, okay, I'm just the canvas for your psychological inadequacy and insecurity. So I'm not going to take that personally. I realize you guys are just projecting at me. I'm going to keep going my way. Okay. That takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of courage. It takes um, a lot of solitude involuntarily, of course. It takes you being okay with criticism. It takes you being okay with people not understanding your intentions, et cetera. So I mean, valuing your own ideal um, over that of another individual's. Um, and there's a quote that I think accurately pertains and encapsulates this by Nietzsche, where he says, the man who does not know his, the way to his ideal lives more frivolously and impudently than the man with no ideal. And again, remember Nietzsche's definition of a great man is a play actor of his own ideal. So my own ideal, my own ideal life, okay, I've accurately and comprehensively describe this person on paper. And once I do that, I say, okay, what would this person do in this situation? Just as Chase was talking about, how can I apply stoicism to this direct moment? I can say, how would my future self arrive in this moment? How would my future self introduce myself to this potential friend? How would my future self come through in this moment? What would I do in the future? And then I try to live my life every single day with one philosophy in mind. And that is do something today that my future self is going to thank me for in retrospect. So when I look back, I don't say I wasn't, I wasn't living for my immediate emotions, my immediate desires, doing all that. I was serving my future self. I was delaying gratification. I was motivated by the desire for pleasing results, not pleasing actions. There's a distinction there. Pleasing actions, I'm going to only do what is easy. I'm going to do what is expedient. I'm not going to do anything difficult or challenging or strenuous. But if I'm motivated by pleasing actions, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to discipline. I'm going to put in the necessary work to delay my gratification and have that enjoyment tenfold down the road. Excellent, John. Um, to any of the other panelists, any closing thoughts before we open it up for Q&A? Um, Alex, you're up first if you'd like. I just want to kind of second what John was saying there, especially towards the closing, where I see so many people's ideas just shut down by the people around them. And I don't know... I don't think I would have been able to get to anywhere where I am, go to the school I want, I did go to, you know, start any of the projects I did, have any of the creative accomplishments that I've, I'm proud of if I had run them by other people <laughs> in general. Just because I think, like John said, there's, it's hard 
people, you know, you become somebody's reflecting board for their own, uh, you know, insecurities or, or you know, doubt, like um, regrets. And I see that happen with so many people around me. And once I see people start, you know, either cutting those ties or starting to understand where the boundaries are between their own values and ideas and other people's, that's when they start to really become an independent person, basically. Excellent. Shrikant, any closing thoughts? Uh, it's been an amazing uh, conversation. I was quite blown away by the fact that all of us, for all of us, writing is, is key. And I, I think uh, the power of writing has not been fully understood of how profound a step it is um, in civilization. I don't think civilization is possible uh, without, without writing. I, both kind of internally what it does to your mind as well as what it does between people. So uh, that's something uh, that, you know, I, I, I want to pursue that uh, further in, in the fullest way. I, you know, I want to do a full, full meetup on that. So it was amazing to hear that. That would be excellent. Um, I totally agree. And for me, writing is also the thing that I'm working on. Like I said, I write a whole lot in terms of my habits and gratitude and things like that. But solidifying my ideas in the way that Alex was talking about, that's my next step. I'm, I'm going to be doing just, that just, much just, more. Just, just to uh, say, like yesterday I did a meetup and one of the goals I have is to do 20 times the amount of writing I'm doing now. So I'm trying to figure out how to do that. So that's, you know, I'm definitely going, going very big on writing because it has produced such amazing results for me. And I, I don't think I'm doing enough. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we will go ahead and open up to audience questions. Just a quick uh, reminder of the rules for questions. Please keep your questions on topic. Please be brief. Please be courteous. Um, and in this case, I'll ask you, since we have a panel here, if you can direct your question to one or two panelists for the answer, that would be excellent. And we will start with Joe. Joe, you're up. Um, I just want to th say thank you to everyone because all four of you have been, uh, not many people have made these transitions, but even fewer have shared their experiences with other people. So I want to say thank you for that. Uh, I've taken something from everybody on this panel, so I very much appreciate all of your efforts. Um, you talked about the, uh, Chase actually had mentioned the idea of failure being the default and how to take an idea into an action. Um, is the key really just persistence at that point then, just showing up and continuing to keep trying and staying and persevering with an idea? more than it is anything along the lines of, uh, you know, I mean, it, obviously, and to John as well, it's about tracking as well. But uh, is it more about just perseverance than anything else? So, uh, yeah, I can, I can absolutely take that. First of all, I think that showing up and perseverance are absolutely necessary, but insufficient uh, steps for any of any sort of self-actualization pursuit. There was a recent episode of the Sam Harris podcast, Making Sense, where he talked to, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but they talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow actually never 
talked about a particular shaped pyramid in terms of hierarchy of needs, but Scott Barry Kaufman, I think that's his name. Um, in his book, studying Maslow and studying self-actualization, he actually comes up with rather than a hierarchy, a sailboat of needs. And he splits the sailboat into a couple of pieces. And I, I this, this metaphor blew me away. And I think this is, this is the answer to your question. The, a sailboat is a great metaphor because it's multiple parts. You have a sail, you have a mast, you have a hull, you have the, the mechanics to manipulate those things. Now, which of those things is key to the sailboat? That, that's a ridiculous question, right? You, you have to have all of them, but you can't start with all of them. If you're building a sailboat, you have to start somewhere. But the key to self-actualization and the, the key, so to speak, to integrating your ideas is actually to have this holistic sailboat approach where you rely on strong foundations and you manipulate the mechanics well, and you are a skilled sailor, right? You have to have all of those things. So my short answer is showing up and persistence are necessary, but insufficient. And the other, just to add on to that, the other reason that the sailboat analogy is good is because in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like it almost looks as if ah, you've fulfilled this level, you get to level up to the next one. And you're fulfilled on the, the bottom rung, so don't worry about it anymore. But that's not the case. Just like a sailboat, you have to maintain all of the parts. And getting, getting the hull together doesn't mean you're done with the hull. You might still have to clean it and patch it and repaint it and do all these things. You're not done with that part. So that's my answer. Uh, do any of the other panelists want to jump in on that? Okay. Yeah, I can talk very briefly. Um, I would add understanding the distinction between a decision and a choice. I've talked about this uh, in the past in different meetups, where if you make a decision, if you look at etymologically, part of the word decision is CIS, like CIS, like kind of like incision, meaning to cut. When you make a decision, what you're doing is literally cutting off all alternatives. A choice is transitory, on the other hand. A choice is like, it's, it's the desire of the immediate uh, moment. So let's look at this practically. If I have a decision to start getting healthy, okay? If I have the decision, I'm going to weigh this weight at this percent body fat, being able to bench squat and deadlift this much by this date, okay? That's a decision. I cut off all other alternatives, all right? I'm done trying things. I don't believe in the word try. You do or you don't at the end of the day. So if I were to make a decision, okay, I do that and then that's the execution. Where if I made a choice, my choice is tethered to my emotional needs and desires of the moment. All right. So if I were to make a choice, that means every single opportunity, every single crossroads I have, whether to make a healthy choice or an unhealthy choice, every single time I go out to dinner, every single time I, I get tempted to order Uber, eat something fast and easy and convenient, every single time I'm, you know, I have the option to either run five miles or not, I have to make those choices hundreds or thousands of times. That's extremely difficult because you're not rooted to any principles. If I make a decision, all I have to do is adhere to my principles. That's a lot different. That's like what, what, what I was talking about earlier, but what would my future self do in this moment? It's a similar chase. What would a stoic do in this moment? I just adhere to the framework and the, and the direction that I've laid out. Whereas a choice, you have to say, hmm, how do I feel about this? What's easier? What's harder? It's a, it takes a lot more mental resources to do that in every single given moment. 
And I think it works the same way with like proximity and with design and with like Chase was talking about the natural inclination of regression and stagnation in, in organic existence, which is a reality and an infallible fact. So if, if you make a decision, you say, I'm going to grow, I'm going to go toward this ideal no matter what. You, once, you, once you come across enervating or attenuating forces, you can say, okay, I'm going to surmount past those. I'm going to keep pushing because it's, it's incongruent with my direction. Whereas if you come up with a distraction, you haven't made the decision, you have to make a choice. Should I entertain this distraction? I don't know if this is going to be beneficial or incongruent. I don't know if this is harmonious or, or, or discordant. I don't know. So you, it takes a lot more mental resources and it takes a lot more trial and error to engage in that way. So it, I think it is partly persistence and consistency, um, but also like making a decision and then sticking to principles. That's also like of, of prime importance. Awesome. Next up is Ed. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks guys. You did a great job. And, uh, <clears throat> I'm a little bit uh, perplexed about one thing. Procrastination is the old adage, it's the thief of time. And most of us procrastinate, and uh, it's uh, kind of a human tendency. We're, we're trying to embark on some type of a new endeavor. Uh, we are, you know, we should be cautious, we should be evaluating things carefully. But how do we prevent a caution from? you know, leading into procrastination. Did you have a specific panelist you wanted to address that? I guess uh, either, uh, I'll, since I know you, I'll, you, you, Chase. I, actually, I think John is, a, is probably one of the best people to answer that. I'm, okay. If you're okay with it, I'm going to pass it to him. Fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so this is actually the idea that I shared in the beginning of the presentation today. Uh, simply the five second rule. I mean, it sounds easy to do, but again, what's easy to do is also easy to neglect and ignore. So it works both ways in polarization. So the five second rule is as follows. Once you have an inclination to do something, whether let's say it's to go on a run, let's say it's to make a healthy meal, let's say it's to call to somebody, let's say to approach a friend, let's say to go to introduce, your some, introduce yourself to somebody at a networking event, if it's fearful, whatever happens to be. You stop all of your mental chatter. You stop all of your excuse making. You stop all of your like justification saying, oh, would this get me the result? Would this do this? Would this do this, et cetera? And instead of all that, you just count down from five to one and then you go. You execute. It's, it's literally that simple because action cures fear. Inaction feeds and proliferates fear. I understood this innately when I was in sales. When I would go to, you know, I was, I was uh, under a lot of like, I wouldn't say stress, but I was under a lot of like um, fear-inducing situations, like cold, cold, cold approaching people. Way back in early career of sales, I used to cold knock doors and things like this. So obviously, that's very fearful socially. Um, you're you're up against criticism. You're up against the unknown. People slam the door in your face, etc. So what I would do is instead of like I realized the the less action that I took, the more my fear would get. So I would justify something. I would justify procrastination by making excuses, by saying, oh, I don't want to go up to that person because they look busy, because they probably don't have enough money for the service anyway, because, oh, look, it's, it's almost lunch. I got to go eat or else I'm not going to function well. Oh, I got to go do this, by the way, by the way. You know, your, your mind, like I call it the monkey mind, this mindless chatter is going to keep perpetuating excuses. Whereas if I stopped all that and I said, you know what, five, four, three, two, one, I'm going to move into action. Um, that's something that can substantiate that. Um, I also have accountability. So I write down my, like my actions. I'm a daily planner. And if I don't do that, um, I would, I would deprive, I personally, like I said, I'm very critical of myself. 
I personally deprive myself of pleasures like movies or Netflix or like going out with friends if I don't complete my goals. That's the way I live my life and it works very well for me. I also reward myself if I do hit all my goals. Um, so I think that's a, that's an accurate approach and to like impress this onto my subconscious mind. I've always memorized the idea from Dante's Inferno um, in the vestibule of hell and it's full of people that didn't take action in their life. So in other words, their sin was procrastination and their punishment where they were stripped naked, they were covered in worms and filth and, and vermin and they were chased around and stung by flies and hornets as a symbolic gesture to externally implore them into action because they couldn't do this themselves. And that was that was going on for eternity. So that was their that that was their punishment, their attributed sin that they had to suffer for eternity. And my and not only they were just pushed into action, but they were pushed into fruitless action. So they were running after a flag with no logo on it, no banner. It was just a gray flag. So it's like you have nothing to show for your toil and your and your labor. So that's even worse than just being pushed into labor. So I always keep that in my head. Um, I actually have a have a tattoo of it, like to eternally. Um, make myself remember this as a symbolic punishment for procrastination. Um, I also have like other various methods, but I usually tend to attribute them to like uh, rewarding myself for action or penalizing myself for inaction. Do you mind if I add on to that? Go for it, Alex. So uh, another thing that has helped me tremendously is really learning to know my own natural rhythm of the day or the week or the month. So there are certain things that I enjoy doing in the morning but i hate doing at night and so for example and other things that affect other things depending on the order in which i do them for example i have really bad social anxiety but if i go to the gym before that which is a rewarding thing for me it makes that next social interaction so much easier and all the fear that would cause me to procrastinate it all that anxiety is gone because i'm relaxed from working out if I'm working on, if I have to write an essay or just write something that I'm not looking forward to, if I do it the second I wake up, it gets done so much faster, so much quicker, and I can get myself to do it. So for me, it's really just been about assessing when, when's the best time for me to do this and what's the most logical order for me to put these tasks in. And I've even thought about sometimes I like the idea of front loading the hard things. So starting with the beginning in the beginning of the day with the hardest possible task or the most stressful thing I could do in order in decreasing levels of difficulty or stress. So basically everything is an improvement. Every action in my day gets easier and easier and easier. And it's, it's like a natural flow. Whereas if I start playing video games and the next thing I need to you know make a phone call and then the next thing I need to work on a project that I hate, it, that it, every part of my day gets worse and worse and worse. So for me, it's really just been about assessing how should I set this up to let me achieve success? Because if I purposefully went through and structured it the worst possible way, I know I would not be nearly as productive and that procrastination would, you know, exponentially increase probably. Yeah. And all this reminds me of my favorite Jocko Willink quote, and it's actually about fear, but I think fear is often a, a player in procrastination, if not the major player. He says the first step in overcoming fear is to take the first step. It's to, it's, it's to step. And I see someone said in the chat, easier said than done. 
And my response to that is always easier done than regretted later or easier done than done later in the worst way possible, right? If you're about taking the easy way, the easy way is discipline. And it's not easy for right now. It's easy in the sense that it's better for your future self. So, all right. Uh, we will take the next question. Dave, I believe you're up. Who is your question for and what have you got? Uh, it's ready for me. Uh, it seemed to me, especially if this is an important idea that it needs to be refined. And it was kind of took me back to last Sunday's talk by Shrikant about writing and bouncing back and forth between analytical and creative. And uh, an example, I'd like Space Needle up in Seattle, I'm sure you've all heard of, and I'm sure Shrikant saw since he worked up here for a while. Uh, on a committee for the world, we really icon and just sketched on a, a uh, napkin. Uh, good, and he showed it to friends, you know, back and forth and back and eventually got you know to send it out for a proposal for architects. But it took, you know, finally got a beautiful building, one of the most. This world, uh, I know about the person pain or everything else, but something uh, this the fourth uh, is important. Would you agree, Shakan? So, Dave, your audio, uh, Shakan, if you got the question. You can, uh, Dave. Your audio was terrible. Uh, if you want to summarize it in one uh, one sentence, I will try to hear and answer it because we are losing every every other word. Can you summarize the question? Yeah, I th think I've got All bad right. internet connection tonight. I was just talking about bouncing back between between. So Dave, go ahead and put your question uh, in, like yeah. in the. Go ahead and put your question in the chat, and we'll hit it after we hit. Jonathan's question. So Jonathan, uh, who's your question for and what do you got? Yeah. So my question is part for John and part for Shrikant. Uh, and it's about the role of art in integrating ideas and knowledge. Um, so the art might be uh, books and films. So John can sort of speak to that. And then the other component when I say art would be uh, architecture or the arrangement of your room, um, the things you have around you. John even mentioned a tattoo just now, so that sort of speaks to this and maybe how it might tie into um, form following function. Um, yeah, so I would see symbolic application and extraction from looking at themes and principles in terms of like movies and great literature, right? The old classic hero's journey, we look at the archetypes there um, and we can realize that without getting like, I would say without over indulging in this, without over consumption of like that is escapism, using art as an inspiration instead of an escape. Um, so it's, it's an objective tool as it is. I'm not going to judge it like constructive or deconstructive, but the use is where it all falls down. People can use that as an escape from reality or people can use that as an a step beyond reality with one, one foot still in pragmatic reality and then using that as inspiration to extract value from yourself. So I honestly look at like 
everybody's life is a work of art if they would design it. So that's like the act of creative imagination, I would say, entails art linguistically. If you create an ideal, creation means art. So I would say creation, absolutely. Um, I brought this, this quote up last week in one of the meetups. Uh, Nietzsche says, we have art in order to not perish from the truth. So art is absolutely necessary uh, in all creative striving and all goal attaining and all doing um, and all extrapolating past the present because we all know if you look at things rather objectively, you can say there is a myriad of attenuating and contributing forces fighting against us. I and mean, we were talking about these earlier, like other people, like nature, like our own mind, um, and even just the temporal scope, right? Time. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to like lose people, et cetera, all these bleak things. So in order to like overcome that, in order to surmount that, we can take principles from art or we can take actions from art. We can take symbolic interpretations of an end result of art superimpose that onto our own life, create our own ideal from a work of art, and then um, emulate that ideal as an art form. And then everything you do becomes creative, becomes an expression of that ideal through your everyday actions. And, and, and to your other like second secondary part of that question, um, I am a large proponent of like the effect of environment on your mental space. They actually call doorways memory erasers because the way your brain is programmed to like when you walk through a certain doorway your mind is actually attributed the contextual clues with that stimuli of the environment with whatever like typical methodology and action that you usually do in that room so if you walk in your kitchen you're gonna like okay I'm, I'm programmed to think this way so in short what i try to do is actually like i went as far as to organize different corners of my room for different certain things. So I have two desks. I have one desk on the other side of my room and it's like my creative desk. So I'll draw, I'll play piano, I'll do things like that. It's not really that intellectually ex exerting. Um, it's just like kind of free flow, like me just having fun. The other desk, it's like, okay, I'm only working on, I'm working on my business stuff, I'm working on a website. So it's like productivity stuff. Um, and it's like you're, you're conditioning your mind to associate particular stimuli with certain perspectives right um so i am largely a proponent of that i think it's even if you don't have this available to you in your immediate environment you can go to a certain coffee shop every day to attribute that with like productivity um and i wouldn't argue against m like mixing as they call it so like don't like engage like don't do productive work in your bed because your bed is associated with sleeping and relaxation for etc or like don't do creative things or like talk on the phone with somebody at somewhere you where you would do your work. Um, I mean, you could, but I think it would be most effective if you, if you attribute certain environmental cues with certain psychological states. And I've tried to do that in my own life, and I found a lot of productivity boost in all areas of my life after I tried to do that. Okay. Um, I, I would like to add, um, add something. Um, I basically agree with uh, what John is saying, but what I want to do is I want to just step back and talk about the concept of art itself. Um, if you look at the concept of art in the Greek times or earlier kind of ancient times, that's a very large concept. It applies to how you do things. It's about doing things well. Um, in the modern times, the concept has been narrowed to essentially fine art. And uh, you know, people like Sullivan, when they talk about art, it's a very large concept. It's basically, how do you do things well? How do you do things right? How do you do things that speak to you, not only at the physical level, but 
also at the emotional level, also at the social level, in every possible way. Um, so the you know on on Wednesday, you know we're going to be talking. You know I and Sherry are going to be talking about art of expression, and Sullivan holds that in order to live fully, we have to develop our system of expression or our system of art. And that applies to how you move, how you speak, how you organize your room, how you deal with people, how do you, how do you create the social structures and work with social structures. And you are operating at all, if, you're, if you are being good, at art, you're actually doing this well at all levels. And it's all about listening to what the requirements of life are, what are the rhythms, what are the limits, uh, as well as you possibly can, and then expressing that through your action. And that's what art is about. So it's a very large idea that applies to, to everything. Awesome. Thank you guys. Um, Dave did end up typing his question in the chat and I believe it was for you, Shrikant, if you want to respond to that, essentially about the role of analytical and creative shuffling for refining ideas and implementing ideas. Okay. I'm trying to find the question. The exact wording is to yes, develop the idea, bounce back and forth from analytical to creative to refine the idea. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's, that's kind of a basic uh, technique that I've found useful. I mean, the, the, the basic thing what you're trying to do is that you're trying to live fully. You're trying to leverage everything that you've got. So you're trying to leverage um, and the analytical versus uh, intuitive is basically, you know, left brain versus right brain. These are the faculties that you have. And you're trying to do everything which which uses, you know, which, for, for example, emotionally, it has this tremendous impact. At the same time, it has the logical structure. It has the cleanliness and efficiency that you get through carefully analyzing all the limits. At the same time, it has the feeling, kind of the inviting feeling and exciting feeling and the open feeling that you want uh, emotionally. And it works on you and it works on other people. And so it's all about, you know, kind of Leonardo had this idea of excellences upon excellences. So in everything that you do, you build all these excellences. You know, you, you use every tool that you have, every faculty that you have. You use, you're aware of every constraint that is there and you implement all of that in everything that you do. Um, so, Shuttling between analytical and intuitive faculty that I talked about is one of the ways of, of doing that. Awesome. Uh, next up is Chris. Who is your question for and your question? Okay. Uh, my question is John. Uh, for John, as John is, I struggle sometimes with uh, indecisiveness and procrastination. I'm more interested in the five second rule. Um, I read a little bit about it before and I remember the author, I think her name is Mel Robbins describing this, just counting down to five, four, three, two, one. And she, she said she kind of visualized herself like at a NASA launch or something that seemed really exciting, something like that along those lines. I was wondering like, how do you implement it? Cause I, I have a hard time going from ideas to actually doing things. 
how do you implement it yourself? Do you visualize some kind of like launch down or some sort of visualization, a lot of positive emotions, or do you just simply count and that's enough to trigger you to do what you need to do or what you want to do? Right. That's a good question. Um, personally, I simply count. Um, it was more voluntarily and deliberate when I started. Like when I first realized this, I would say, okay, five, four, three, two, one, and just take the first step. Um, as Chase was saying, the easiest, the, the hardest step is the first step, but after that momentum just handles it, it carries the rest. So <clears throat> I used to just deliberately count, but I think I've, I'm not going to say I completely internalized it. Absolutely not. Cause it just, everybody obviously still tries, I would say struggles with some element and some resolution of indecision and procrastination. But I, I used, I started with counting, but then after that, I would say my routine is structured in the way that if I don't hit my goals, if I don't hit my tasks and my bold actions that I wanted to do that day, that's where all of my, that's where all of my, my tracking comes in because I have accountability. And if I don't hit my goals, if I, if I wanted to do something and I, and I, you know, stayed in my comfort zone out of cowardice or out of comfort, I then I have multiple methodologies that I use. So I either like reward myself if I do hit all my goals by just whatever I wanted to do that weekend or something, or I refrain myself from other pleasures. So I don't let myself, you know, indulge in hanging out with friends or watching Netflix or something like this. Like that's just the personal methodology that I use. Um, for a, a, another like little hack, I would say that's like, it's kind of drastic. I would say I've got a lot of judgment for this one, but it's one of the most effective things I've ever done. Um, there's this company it's called Pavlock. This is a bracelet. Okay. It's a little, little, uh, little lightning emblem Pavlock. It's named after Pavlog for dogs. Um, and it's literally the equivalent of a shot collar. So I put it on my wrist, right? I have an app on my phone and I can actually press a button and it'll give me like, it was like, it's not really strong. It's like, you remember from like high school and elementary school, you pull those sticks of gum. It's just like a little, little pinch. It's like nothing crazy. But this is like a literally a tool for productivity. And again, I've been judged for using this, but it's effective. So if, if it gets to that level, I would actually suggest that. Um, it's a little bit, like I said, it's a little bit uh, out, of the, out of the ordinary, but uh, it works. It works. If I do find myself procrastinating on something or indulging in like a string of negative thoughts or worries, I just quick, quickly uh, zap myself. So that's pretty, pretty uh, straightens me out pretty quick. And on that note, next is Sanjay. Who is your question for? And what's your question? Uh, sorry, I had some difficulty unmuting. So first, um, I just want to make a quick comment. Um, I, uh, when John described this five-second rule, it was, it was eerie because I actually um, had come up with that um, when I was young. And um, so I just wanted to give a slight twist on, on, on what I do. Um, I, initially, I counted down from 10, but over over the years, I, I realized um, to change the starting number. So I usually count from between five and eight. Um, and and um, an added part is that as I'm counting down, I try to force myself to think of a single positive reason why I need to take that action. And what that ends up doing is that um, even after you've reached zero and you know, hopefully you, you get up and start doing the action, um, even after you hit zero, that positive thought still resonates in your mind and it continues and, and basically motivates you into, into doing it. Um, so, so great idea. Uh, my question is, um, and my question may, originally I thought to John, but um, what Shrikant just said um, a minute ago also resonates. So um, 
um, either of them or anyone really. So um, it's about resource, limited resources. So all of the um, ideas that we have, the people that we want to talk with, uh, the books that we want to buy and read, um, the time that we have to do all these things, these are all limited resources function under. So my question really is, is that to overcome these limitations, um, I was, my question is around the power of exponentials and Srikant started mentioning this and John had talked about this earlier also. So how do we use the power of exponentials to better get use out of the limited resources we have? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it and then hand it over to John. Um, I think, I mean, it's, I think it's all about getting the processes right, which are kind of scalable. Um, there are things where which are kind of one-off things, um, and then there are things which you can keep building on and on and on. And there are so it's kind of like a universal key. You know, if you kept on repeating it, is it going to give you good things? And if you operate, you know, you kind of you're, you're very careful about saying, okay, is this something one of this kind? Um, and then using such methods, which are kind of scalable, um, I find that to be uh, kind of the best way to go. So for one of the methods is, there's a bunch of methods that are there in how to read a book of saying, okay, there are all these universe of book, books around. What do I need to do in order to get most out of the book? So it's not about reading a particular book. It is, it is giving you tools that can kind of keep, uh, building another example of that is writing you know it's it's a very scalable tool you know you can write at a large level you can write at a small level you can increase your precision you can increase your comprehension so there are a bunch of tools which are kind of scalable so for me that's what i kind of zoom in on kind of identifying scale you know tools which are scalable trying to tweak them to make sure that it doesn't have things that would kind of cause limits um, and using those tools on a continual basis. John. Yeah, so <clears throat> personally, uh, after like if I, if I ruminate on what I've done and how I've thought about my own life, I've never been held back by lack of resources. I've been held back of lack of, held by, held back by lack of resourcefulness, I would say. So not getting creative, not having prioritization um, because everything I've, and probably not just me, probably everybody in this chat as well. Anything you could think of that you really seriously wanted, you've got, you've attained, that you seriously wanted, all right? You found a way to do it if you didn't have the time, if you didn't have the money, if you didn't have the, the connections, whatever it happened to be. I wouldn't look at it ever as a lack of resources. I think that's a, I don't want to say mask, but for lack of a better term, I use, use that as a placeholder for now. But so I would say being resourceful with what we do have and learning to utilize and, 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 recognize the tools that we do have at our, at our disposal. And once we do that as a predicate, we can then extrapolate and find what is, what are our priorities from that, from, from using the tools. So in other words, once we have these tools that Srikant is talking about, what are the areas of life where we can apply them for the most reward? And then once we do that, 
we can extrapolate and look at, okay, what are the principles that worked here? And I can learn from my failures, learn from my, my defeats, learn from my temporary defeats and my, and my shortcomings in that realm, in that pursuit. And then I can take those principles and I've, I've formulated a corrected course, and then I can apply it to these other realms of life where I think that I lack resources in. So I think it's a, a matter of, instead of resources, it's, it's resourcefulness, creativity, making the most of what we do have. Um, and yeah, application from there and, and prioritization as well. I think it's a big part. All right, Gene, and please uh, tell us who your question is directed for. Well, actually, uh, my question is direct to anyone who like to answer. So uh, I studied also uh, Tony Robbins and Jim Ryan, and I found they're quite useful actually in the very practical business part of my work, I'm architect, but I found actually for the creative part, you know, also the self-discipline. I'm not a very self-disciplined person myself, but I found, you know, like it's helped, really helped me to get things done, you know, get the business, you know, all the things I don't want to do, I have to do like bookkeeping, all this other stuff. But I found for the creative part of work, it's very tricky. Not like you, it's not about the time. It's actually, you have to relax. You know, like, I, to my opinion, the most creative country in the world is Sweden. And people are super relaxed there. And also the kids, I heard, if they can be creative, they are bored. You know, if you have kids arrange all the activities, super busy, super driven, they cannot be very creative. So it's quite ironic, I think, in that sense. So I just want to hear you guys' opinion on that. Anybody want to take uh, a stab at creativity and boredom and busyness? I'll, I'll go for it. Go um, so basically my life ended up just going into a very creative field, right? Writing music, making, now I'm making videos and stuff. And I grew up super bored. I was an only child. I lived in the middle of nowhere. I only could see friends occasionally. So I had to, keep myself entertained. And with that, I would build things, I would draw, I would write, I would create. And that's really where I learned almost the skills of creativity. I, I did find in a period of my life where I kind of, to use, to use John, John's words, like indulged in behaviors more like lots of video games, um, lots of, you know, very dopamine burst activities the i wasn't i i wasn't feeling that drive to go make things i was satisfied with the content that was being given to me so for me it's really important to kind of define how much output versus how much input i'm getting so for example if i know i need to write music all day long there's going to be a point where i'm actually going to start reducing um, my creativity because I've been focusing on the same thing. So at that point, it's actually helpful for my creativity to do something else, anything else. Even if it's one of those like dopamine burst things, it might give me ideas or spur it. But when I'm thinking about just pure generation of ideas, I definitely would agree that you need to create some level of boredom, whether that's... Um, I guess it would be more specifically mental boredom for me. Um, 
But to be honest, I feel like I could attribute some of it to a physical energy buildup too. I feel less creative after I exercise. I feel like more creative right in the morning as things happen throughout my day. I feel like my creativity actually goes down. So that's just a personal thing for me, but it's something I've noticed that there are physiological repercussions from certain activities that impact it. And I can't do anything to fix that, right? If I'm not, if I'm, my brain is working a little bit more slowly, I probably feel better. I feel more relaxed, but I don't feel ideas jumping around needing to get those out. So that's my take. All right. Thanks for the question. Thanks, Alex. Next up is Bob. And again, please direct your question. I believe it was Bob G. Ah, his question was, oh, go ahead. I wrote my question already. Was uh, how to overcome a lifetime of failure and rejection to, to do whatever you said that it would work, like build this, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I found it. Okay, I'll read it word for word to the panel. Okay, yeah. Who do you who do you want that directed to? Uh, you can even just type that in the chat if you want. Everybody, it's, it's okay. Okay. The question is, how do you build the stoic discipline to build a better life for yourself after experiencing a lifetime of failure and rejection? So I can take some of that. I have not lived a lifetime of anything yet. Um, but I think that your response to failure and rejection, to be honest, I think that if you read some of what the Stoics talk about, all of us are sort of living on the heels of our, our past, no matter what it is. And what matters is how you move forward. If you read Seneca's very first essay to his friend Lucilius, he has these letters to his friend Lucilius. They're very short. You can read them in one sitting. It'll take you 10 minutes at most. Uh, the very first one is on time. And one of the things that struck me about how he talks about time is he essentially says everything in the past, like that's dead. Your past self is dead. Basically might as well be buried in the ground. What you have now is your present self and an indefinite and unknown future self. Why would you waste any time from here on out? So if you're on the heels of a life of rejection and failure, that's dead. It's already dead. You can, you can put that behind you and say, all right, my life of rejection and failure is behind me. I've got my present self. I've got my indefinite and unknown future. Some part of that may contain rejection and failure, but now I have the chance, now that I'm here right now, I have the chance to act otherwise, no matter how old you are. And a lot of times that's very difficult. One of the insights that I, I had recently uh, was that often for older, older people, it's even harder to make changes like this because you feel like Let's give an example of fitness. This is the example that I, I always give. And this is not the case for everyone. But imagine that you are somebody who is 
65, 70 years old, and you've never been fit in your life, and someone comes to you with some, uh, some idea for fitness that, say, meets your filter criteria, like Alex was saying, it's, it seems accurate, it seems realistic, and it seems relevant to you, and you actually try it, and you start to see some success. But that idea has been around. So what does that mean? What, what are the implications of having a successful implementation of, of good physical health when you are 65 and you have never been healthy in your life? To be honest, that means a lot. That means that you, quote unquote, could have implemented, implemented that idea earlier. And that, for a lot of people, feels embarrassing. That feels like, well, if I could have done it earlier, why wouldn't I? Like that means that there's something not wrong with the idea, but there's something wrong with me that I couldn't do that earlier. And there's a whole lot of fear of and and self-criticism that comes with that of like, well, why didn't I start earlier? Uh, the problem with that is that that's, that's not a useful way of looking at your life. And no matter where you are, pointing upward, uh, pointing in the upward direction is the 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 cure, in some sense. No matter what failure and rejection may be behind you, uh, going into the future with that that upward direction, I think, is the the antidote. I hope that answers your question. Any of the other panelists want to hit that? Yeah, so I responded to part of it with text. I mean, I said, we're only as strong as what we've overcome. So personally, I look at all of my challenges, all of my defeats, all of my failures, all of my embarrassments, all of my rejections, all of my exploitations from other people, etc. I try to reframe them as beneficial and good and opportunities to exert uh, the constituents and confines of my character. So like my personal philosophy, how I look at all struggle, all suffering, everything it's like this shining light that's on us and we don't know the shape of the silhouette of our character. And so we've had enough like obstacles thrown at us. Right. So with enough of that, we can understand our strength. And I, and I, I also use fitness as an example, just like chase. Um, so out of my over 11 years in the gym, okay. I have failed thousands and thousands and thousands of reps. Okay. Thousands of times I set out to do this weight for this many reps that sets. I didn't do it thousands of times. And it was for those reasons that I experienced growth because I think growth comes from doing what's uncomfortable. There's also a thousand ways to say this, um, a quote by Nietzsche out of the deepest must the highest come to its height. Carl Jung says no tree, no trees, leaves can reach heaven unless it's roots reach down into hell. Nietzsche also in thus spoke Zarathustra says anybody who found the anybody who created a new heaven found the power to do so within the midst of his own hell. So the only way, and this is also symbolically gestured in Dante's Inferno itself, the way to heaven is through hell. That's what Dante goes through. He goes through these concentric circles down to the most malevolent, malicious ideology and philosophy. And then through that is then paradise. So that's part of my intrinsic philosophy as well from like observing the, I guess, course of my own life. Um, and I become to, I reframe those as, as obstacles. I reframe obstacles as something that is beneficial to test my character. Um, and I also test it 
So I don't look at things as losses. So I believe, and I, I talked about this earlier, if you have an ideal, okay, if you have an ideal of like what you want your life to look like, even if it's amorphous and vague, or even if it's like in specific vivid detail down to these like meticulous details of what you want your life to look like. If you have an ideal, everything then becomes an investment into that ideal. So nothing, if you have an ideal, in other words, nothing is a loss, right? Everything becomes an investment into that ideal. Okay. So it's like, well, I, I use, let's use the example earlier. I was talking about like how to be successful, you might have to be a nonconformist. You might have to lose friends that like discourage you or like, like Alex was talking about, he didn't run his ideas by people. Let's say I ran my ideas by people and they all reject me. So therefore I decided to cut them off. So people can say I lost those friendships. But a correct way, a constructive way, a healthy attitude to, to reframe that would say, I invested those relationships to have my ideal. I made that exchange. I made that trade-off. I made that sacrifice. So if you don't have an ideal, yeah, you're losing all the time because you don't know what you're applying it toward. So if you sacrifice you know, these destructive things at the expense of something positive, it's no longer a loss. It's then an investment. It is the necessary price that we have to pay to attain the object of our definite chief aim, of our ideal, of our goal, our vision, our wish, our imagination, whatever you want to impose as that terminology, that we are working toward. But this is all predicated on the fact that we have that established ideal, which is what a lot of people do not do because it's difficult, because it's uncomfortable, because it takes a lot of mental energy, because it takes a lot of creative imagination, because it was never encouraged in school and in religion in, in, from parents, from society. It was, these things are never encouraged, at least in my experiences. So. I personally reframe them to look at to I, I look at them as beneficial. I actually welcome resistance. I welcome struggle. I welcome suffering. Uh, now that I've been able to surmount a lot of the things in my previous circumstances uh, and after reflection and rumination, I believe that I wouldn't be half the person I was today if I didn't go through like all of these struggles and failures and rejections. So I have, be, I have come to be grateful for them and appreciate them. And I also have a healthy welcoming attitude toward them in the future, because I know that's a price I have to pay to get to my ideal. So the Stoics talk about this and, um, uh, Napoleon Hill talks about this as well. I think the Napoleon Hill quote is something like you must understand what you want out of life and you must understand life's price for getting it. And you must be willing to pay that price. Um, the Stoic part of that is essentially your ideal must also be in accordance with nature. You must, you have to also integrate the understanding that you're acting in the world and the world is a system of cause and effect. And sometimes those things are out of your control. So if your ideal is something that's out of your, your control, you also have the wrong ideals. Uh, that's one of the other ways to handle suffering. That's a whole other topic and podcast that I would love to get into. We have limited uh, time and resources here. The next question, I believe, is the last question, uh, is Jeff. And again, please direct your question to a panelist. Thanks, guys. It was really, uh, it was a, for a lot of reasons, I, I really, uh, I needed to hear this from you tonight. So what I want to do is, is uh, take just one, ask you to, to take uh, just one um, extension from what you've done. I think that um, a, a lot of the vantage point from which you've, uh, you've presented and offered what you've offered here is um, focused on uh, what it looks like and what, and what it is for an individual 
to, to do these things. And a lot of my experience in the day is really not me as an individual. I, I spend a lot of time with other folks who are often facing some, some challenges. Like today, I spent a big part of the day um, facilitating and coaching a group that's trying to figure out how they can safely and productively open the New York City schools, okay? Imagine a more vexing or challenging um, issue. You can't even imagine the level of, of difficulty of this conversation. Um, uh, you'll be interested to note, uh, Chase, that we started off the day with what we were grateful for as a way of connecting with each other because we knew we were going to take on some seemingly insurmountable um, issues. Um, you'll be interested, Trikant, to know that um, we really uh, uh, completely uh, based ourselves in form follows function here by thinking at first, you know, what are the main things that we might be trying to accomplish? And then we, we veered off a little bit and took each of the folks, teachers, parents, kids, and told stories from their perspectives in order to um, then really identify the problems and the needs and what we were most concerned about and the interdependencies regarding um, who needs to do what for, you know, as their role in the ecosystem. So a little introduction to that. My question is, how would you extend the kinds of things that you've laid out here today to um, not, to, you know, if you consider that there's the there's the world of one person, there's the world uh, that they have of the folks that they're close to uh, as a team or a family, whatever, and then there's the world, um, you know, way beyond just even their little group. How would you, how might you extend the things that you've offered here today to, uh, to go at least one, maybe even two steps beyond just how I as an individual can be most successful or productive? See, and maybe I should pass this question off, but I think that's part, at least in part, what we're doing by having a panel discussion, right? This is a group. This is how we, as a group, start to apply ideas to our lives. We share those ideas with each other. We share our strategies for implementation and we all grow together from that as a group, hopefully. Now, groups are made up of individuals and you know, there's the Jordan Peterson rule in his book where he says, put your own house in order before you criticize others. And what he, he's said uh, in the context of that rule is like you have to get yourself to a certain level and then you can spread out from there. Um, I, I don't know much more than that other than like in the context of this, trying to spread ideas, trying to engage people in ideas and help them understand the relevance that ideas have to our lives. Like there are people who are just, they're, they're content and in my mind, complacent with the ideas that they have about how to live their life. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think for whatever we can do to help shake those individuals awake and say, look, it actually is important what you think and that you have, have used good tools to think about those things. Uh, I think that's, that's how we empower groups to implement ideas. 
open to the other panelists if you'd like to contribute. Yeah, I mean, I, I always love that that Peterson idea because it's like, it, I mean, also imbued with stoicism, I mean, like that's in your complete control is like your actions and judgments and opinions. And also, I mean, a, a secondary notion, if I wanted to improve someone's behavior, I'm not just going to spew like scientific facts and validations and studies and all these things. What I'm going to do is show them how I've made that transformation in my own life. Men learn best at the school of example. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Nietzsche and Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He says, of all that a man has written, I only love what a man has written with his blood. Meaning he's sacrificed. He's put in the work. He's led by example. He's practiced what he's preached. It's not just empty, hollow words or empty, hollow projections or judgments or saying this person should do this because it's it's furtively an expression of how I what I'm insecure about and telling them I, they should do this. Instead of that, I think the best way is, is just leading by example, uh, looking at yourself as like a node in the network. So the whole study of the six degrees of separation, that's not a cliche, like that's been an actual psychological study. Um, so we should act as if our actions our words, our deeds change the outcome of the world because they do. This is not able to be quantified on a, on a scale that's like comprehensible by our limited resources and limited understanding and limited brains, but literally our acts, our words, our deeds change the outcome of, of the human race of, of, and therefore the world. So we should act like this. Um, and the best way to facilitate positive change is to first facilitate positive change within us. So then we can actually recognize ourselves as, you know, as the, 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 the union process of like individuality or individuation um, and then looking at ourselves as a node in the network and then leading by example uh, and having these things in mind. Like a, a, there, there's an idea by Kant um, where he says we should act as if the will of our action were to uh, act as if the maxim of our action were to become through our will an immutable law of nature. So in other words, if everybody in the world acted as you, what would the world look like? Or even a smaller scale, if you ran a society, if you ran a company of a hundred clones of you, what is the net result of that company? Is it good? Is it profitable? Is it a failure? Are they all uh, are they detestable? Are they not working together? Are they, are they harmonious, et cetera? So I think the best way and the only way we really have control over is to you know, do all of this self-work and then we can then extend, as, as Chase was saying, you know, compassionately spread information and, you know, suggest people to do this, suggest people to do that, you know, show them something that they might not see from a new perspective, you know, maybe give constructive uh, criticism and feedback, uh, encourage them when they win, uh, et cetera. So, but at the end of the day, I do think they, people learn best at the school of example um, and to give advice that is, that is unqualified. I don't think that's necessarily beneficial. I'd like to add to that. I, I agree, John. I was going to say something similar to that effect, but also the flip side, the everything you do wrong and everything you fail at, like to give an open and honest look to other people at that, you know, and like I, part of my whole endeavor with what I'm working on now is to help try to show people like there's like 60% of the time where I don't pull it off and that's okay. You know, and here are the reasons. Here's why I didn't pull it off. And here's how I'm going to make changes. And to be open and upfront, I think, can really help to alle alleviate some of other people's, um, you know, to, like overly harsh self critiques and unhelpful self critiques and unhelpful self image that further push them into a, a realm 
you know, that's they think that they're different than everybody else. If I, if I can show them both in my failures and successes that there's a similarity between us, they can start to understand. Even if they feel like everything's going badly for them, I, I think that gives some common ground. Like, well, same for that guy, and he's still doing it. Like to my level of what I would hope for. So yeah, I, I feel like an honesty, especially in a in an age where. For the past 10 years, everybody's been putting a perfected version of themselves out into society. So that's my take. Excellent. Shrikant, anything you want to add? Um, I would say I think the biggest thing one individual can offer another is the example, your own example. So if you are, if you're doing the best you can, um, I think that has a much more profound impact on others. Uh, that is certainly true. You know, when I look at people who has, have influenced me, they've had really nothing to do with me. They just, it's just by virtue of what they are, that they have the maximum impact on others. Uh, Chase, back to you. Excellent. Well, thank you everybody for participating in the discussion. Thank you to our panelists. Again, Alex, Chase, that's me, Shrikant, John. Uh, I really appreciate it. This has been enlightening for in, enlightening for me. I wrote down a whole bunch of notes for things to go and write about and study and explore. And uh, I always love when I walk away from discussions like that. So thank you guys. The Switch is produced by Mojo Filter Media. That's our audio production company that specializes in audio for interactive media. Composition, production, implementation, we do it all. Find out more at www.mojofilter.media.